0: have sound. Well, good morning. It is so excellent to be with you again this morning. Um, It's great being able, I was just saying uh, as we wrapped up our time of prayer, it's so great being able to visit your church um, every couple of months and and to be able to see new people and especially new children here every time that we visit. That's, That's such a blessing and I'm so glad for you as a church congregation. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathaniel. Uh, I, get the privilege, I get the privilege of serving as the youth pastor at Oasis Church, which was Bray Park Church just up on the north side, another sister reformed church in our denomination. And uh, I'm married to Rachel. She's here with us this morning. Um, we've come down from the north side, and it's great to be back with you again. Like I said, I enjoy being with you here as a church Um, It's great being able to unpack the Word. Uh, I've had great conversations with you before. I look forward to having a cup of tea with you after the service. Um, I feel really comfortable and welcome here. But I wonder what would happen if I was to stand up here this morning and start preaching some incredibly faulty, dangerous message. So, for example, what if I was to stand here and spend the next 20 minutes trying to tell you that Jesus didn't actually become fully man. Yeah, off the stage, I, I'd hope so. Or you know, if I said that I'd been given a new gospel message and it included you paying for me to live a glamorous life. I, yeah. <laughs> now, hopefully it wouldn't be too long uh, before maybe one of the elders hopped up and you know gently ushered me off, the guy switched off the microphone, um, What what would happen if I then decided decided to stick around after the service, you know, dodging the elders and and trying to find some gullible people who I could convince of these very false views? Would you still welcome me for, for tea and coffee after the service? If I stick by that and keep on trying to persuade people of that and don't listen to reason, would you even associate with me? Now, to clarify, I'm not saying any of those things. There's no reason to tackle me off the stage this morning. Um, that's, that's not views that I'm going to be sharing. And there are good processes in place for making sure we have competent and qualified people in the pulpit, in our churches across our denomination. We have good boundaries and good systems. But as the early church was finding its feet and the Bible was still being completed, these exact issues came up. And in this context, the Apostle John wrote the book of Second John, the letter which we're going to be unpacking today. John, who was by now likely one of or the last of Jesus' 12 disciples still alive, was writing many letters to churches and individuals, we think probably around the area of modern day Turkey, uh, writing to second or third generation Christians who needed to be shepherded and guided as they started to, to live out and unpack the details of Christian life. Now, John writes, and we'll read his letter in a moment, he writes to the lady chosen by God and her children, which probably is not a specific woman, uh, but more likely a common term of endearment for a church and its members, but in a context of extended families living in one house and, and house churches, probably much the same thing anyway. Now, at the time, there were lots of itinerant preachers going around, teaching in various churches, trying to plant new ones. Uh, Inns in the day were notoriously shady. Innkeepers would charge huge rates. So the practice was that a local church would welcome these preachers, they would stay with the local church in the house where the local church meets, and they would be able to preach and teach in that church community. But there's a problem. Some people are calling themselves Christian teachers, but teaching false doctrine, which goes against the core message of Christian belief. And they expected that because they're called Christians, they would be given a welcome into the houses, into the homes, into the church of the local churches they were going to. So what to do about this? How to show love, how to show truth in a way which upholds good, right, sound teaching? Well, John writes an exhortation to truth and love. Let's read what he writes in the short, sharp letter of Second John. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. Thanks so much. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings." Let's take a moment in prayer before we unpack these words. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for giving us your word. We ask that you will work by your spirit through me, that you will shape my words, that I will speak in a way which, which shows integrity to your text which reflects uh, the intent that you had here and the, the message that you have for your people, your church here and your church for all time. Please work in all of our hearts. Grow us by the power of your spirit that we may understand your word, that we may apply your word, that we may be shaped and grown to be more like Christ as your word is applied to our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. So throughout that letter that we just read, John dwells on the intertwined themes of truth and love. He keeps going back to them, he keeps on repeating them. So let's go through and see what he has to say about truth and love. Start with the first three verses where he introduces the theme. Now those opening verses, they identify the recipients, they introduce us to the theme of truth and love. Now this letter, it's clearly directed at a group of Christians to challenge and to encourage them as they follow Jesus. And it has plenty of direct application to, to those of us who are Christian. But, now I don't know everybody who's here this morning, and maybe you're, you're here as somebody who isn't a Christian yet. Maybe you're on the, on the line there, or you haven't quite made that decision for Christ, and you're thinking, uh, not too relevant for me. But this is actually really relevant and encouraging for those of us who haven't made a decision to follow Jesus yet, who haven't placed our trust in him, because it shows us what standard we as Christians seek to follow as we apply his truth and love in our lives. So see the way that John speaks about truth and love here. He doesn't speak about truth and love as some tend to today as if they're two opposites to be kept in balance like one has to has to weigh the other properly but rather they're intertwined through the whole letter truth and love are like the same two sides of the same coin you can't fully have one without the other to live the truth is love to love like Jesus is to show truth only when you find agreement On sound doctrine, will you find meaningful fellowship? And having sound doctrine must necessarily lead to having meaningful fellowship. This union of truth and love is something which John builds his letter upon because it's foundational to Christian life. But it isn't just a command for us to follow, rather, it's something which we are equipped and enabled for as God works in our hearts. Look at verse 3 there. He writes, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Because Christ really is who he claims to be. So those who trust in him are transformed by that relationship bit by bit. We are united to others who are also being transformed by Christ. And John writes with deep affection to the people, because to be in the truth together naturally means loving others who are also in that truth, because that truth is, lives in us and will be with us forever, as he says. And so he writes to those who, not whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. You know, if we're Christians, we're called to love our neighbours, we're called to love our enemies, but we are bound to other Christians, our fellow Christians, by a special bond of truth. You know, the heretics, which John speaks to later on in this letter, they'll leave us and they'll go out into the world, but in the Christian society, truth and love remain secure, related, interdependent. As long as the truth endures in us and with us, so also our reciprocal love should endure. You know, it's on that basis that Paul concludes in in Romans 13. He says, love is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of obedience to all that God commands. Obedience to the truth and obedience in love are inseparable priorities if we're to live as God requires. And that's the grounding which John is driving home as he opens up this letter. So what does it look like to live in truth and love? Well, we get some, some good hints there in, in verses 4 to 6. Second John will soon move to his, his main focus, this warning against false teaching. But first, he wants to establish his foundations. And he wants to encourage his readers that when they get to the point of, of pushing aside um, some people in some contexts, that's not to, that's not to um, neglect truth and love. He wants to encourage them that they already are doing really well in these areas, so they know that the strong words in, in the final section are in that, in that context. And so he begins with this encouragement to those who are already walking in truth, remembering that the church and its, and its congregation are described as the lady and her children. In verse 4, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. John is deeply encouraged to hear that church members are doing well living in the truth. But what does living in the truth mean? Well, the context and the other letters we have from John and through the New Testament show us that living in the truth is to hold on to and to live out good, sound doctrine, good understanding of who God is, who we are, and how he made us to be to teach and to express this gospel message as John and as the other apostles had taught it, had shared it, as Jesus had taught to them. So now John continues, building on what it means to live in obedience to the truth. Verses 5 there and 6. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that we walk in love. Now, John's train of argument and his grammar can be a bit confusing to get to his point, and I think that might be intentional. He's going in a roundabout way, establishing this intertwined relationship of truth and following God faithfully and love being a cause and effect thing in the Christian life. His point there is simple, right? Truth and love are deeply intertwined as we live out following Jesus as we live out his command. And what command is it that he keeps referring to there? He talks about an old command, not only here, but through his other letters, to show that John isn't adding anything to what Jesus taught him. He isn't building on Jesus' message. As we read recorded by him in John thirteen thirty-four, the Gospel of John, a new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's Jesus' command that was given from the beginning. And that command builds on Jesus' summary of the whole law. You know, How does Jesus summarize the whole of the law and the prophets? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience is love, and love is obedience. These, these concepts intertwined, and, and I think John intentionally melds them together in our minds. So throughout, John is building and reinforcing a clear picture, encouraging the church as they continue to walk in love and truth and showing that walking in love and truth is the foundation of Jesus' teaching. So what exactly is this love and truth? Like, what are some practical things we can do to express love and truth together? Well, John doesn't give us examples here, but we have plenty of examples through the Bible. First, we see that it's a Christ-like love and truth. Loving, giving up us, giving up ourselves for one another, caring for others, serving one another humbly as, as Christ has has served us, correcting or even rebuking others where needed in love to point them back towards Jesus. And we have plenty of specific instructions and commands through the New Testament on how we can live that out. You know, take, for example, Hebrews thirteen: keep on loving one another like brothers and sisters. Philippians two. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In Galatians, we're taught about how we can come alongside those who are caught in sin. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted." Or in the next verse, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Or on prayer in Ephesians, pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. To live in truth and love is in essence to do all those things which... You know, I'm sure anyone who's been around church for a while or went to Sunday school could list off praying, reading your Bible, going to church, caring about other people, to do those with the heartfelt intention of caring for other people in the community. Now, that's a great picture. It's beautiful. I'm sure it sounds good to all of us. I'm sure we could all say, "Yep, that's that's great. That's what a church should look like." But perhaps for you, dwelling on that picture of a perfect expression of truth and love intertwined and expressed, maybe that brings a hint of sadness as well. Because it's likely, with many of us here who have walked the Christian life for some time, that there will also be many of us here who know the pain that comes when Christians don't express truth and love well. When that can lead to division and to disappointment, and to hurt. While it's true that to know Christ means that we will begin to express this truth and love, we still live in a state of tension right, between our old self and the new self, and we don't always get this truth and love right or express it properly. So perhaps you've been hurt by other believers before. Maybe you yourself have been guilty of causing that damage. In either case, we can continue returning to the source of truth and love, looking to Christ who, as we read in the greeting, gives grace, mercy, and peace through his truth and love, seeing in him all that we fail to be and all that others can never fully be for us. So the first half of 2 John speaks to the essential nature of truth and love in the Christian life. And the final section then gives guidance on applying this when messages which threaten the essentials of faith arise. We arrive at at the central and, and final part of John's letter, defending truth and love. Now, it was important for John to highlight this intertwined relationship of truth and love as the context which he speaks to is, is against false teachers whose message undermines this truth and love. Because message, teaching which goes against the gospel message corrupts both truth and love, because taking away from one, taking away from the truth, must then detract from the other. Now, it's really important to, to value the truth highly, and I think that as Reformed Christians, we have a, a reputation for doing this well, but sometimes we've also earned a, a reputation for not showing love as appropriately as we could as we do so. You know, I thought this week, while ruminating on this sermon and eating pasta, that truth and love, uh, truth, truth without love, is sort of like pasta without water. It's not particularly nutritious. It's incomplete. It becomes hard and unpalatable and isn't of great benefit. Whereas truth and love together, pasta, which has been prepared in water, is actually quite delicious. It's good for us. It's tasty. It's nourishing. As we have seen, truth and love are interwoven. Like the common quote goes, truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. And so John has grounded his teaching on how to respond to false teaching in truth and love. Now what does this false teaching look like? Theological error can, relate, can range hugely from, you know, quoting Chronicles instead of Corinthians to denying the nature of Jesus as being fully man or fully God. And those two errors, right, and everything in between should bring about very different responses. What are we supposed to speak against as firmly as John does, and what should we perhaps be a bit more gentle with? Through the, the history of the Christian church, this question has been raised and discussed often, and the result on how to respond there is, is consistently something along the lines of a, a theological triage of sorts. Uh, if you've been to a hospital emergency department before, maybe you're particularly familiar with one, there's often a triage nurse when you enter the hospital. Their role is to evaluate how significant a problem is and how you should respond to that problem. You know, Much like how a triage at a hospital works to identify how serious an illness or an injury is, we should practice identifying how serious an error or a disagreement is, you know, never implying that we don't take biblical belief seriously, but helping us to work through an appropriate response to each given issue. Now, in the Reformed tradition, we've typically landed at saying first order, second order, or third order, or Latin words to that extent, meaning we differentiate between what is essential for faith, what is beneficial for faith, and what brings fullness to our faith, first, second, and third. These are helpful labels, not a set system, although the Bible also speaks to various degrees of importance on theological issues. Uh, Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 15 or or Romans 14, where Paul speaks of the gospel as being of first order. And the issue which 2 John is speaking to is an issue of the first order. Those issues which are crucial for Christian faith. If we compromise on a first order thing, like what John is addressing here, we stop being Christians. And so anyone who's teaching or encouraging a, a view which is, which is incorrect in the first order is, by definition, not a Christian. And John identifies the issue he's speaking to. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, who are saying that Jesus was not man, he was not actually a physical, embodied human, they've gone out into the world... Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, to believe that Jesus is not, did not take on real, physical human flesh is to deny the core message of the gospel, that God the Son took on humanity, took on human flesh, so that he could pay the penalty for our sin. You know, if that isn't true, the gospel of salvation offered by grace alone becomes impossible. As we read in in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, "...since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death." That is the devil. "...for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." John is speaking to an issue which, if left unresolved, if unaddressed, compromises the very heart of the gospel, twists the belief from something to into something which is inherently not Christian. And that gives us the reason for the strong language he uses there, deceiver and antichrist. You know, that, that message warps the very heart of the gospel. False doctrine like that warps our understanding of, of truth and love, right? Because if Christ has not come as a fully human being, taken on full humanity, share in our pain, then that detracts from the love of God, which we only see in all that Christ has done for us. Now, that's a problem John was addressing, but it's also a common falsehood today. Many people today want God without Jesus, perhaps believing in God but seeing no necessity for Jesus. Or regarding other religions, whether ancient or modern, as being alternative roads to God, as if we don't need Jesus to get there. Teaching perhaps that Jesus was in some way not fully man and and fully God. Whatever the approach, any claim in that area has to be resisted. So, how should we respond when we encounter that sort of teaching? Verses 10 and 11 give us helpful insight as we see John's instruction to the church he was writing to. In a culture where welcoming someone as a guest meant endorsing them like a friend, John warns his audience to not even welcome those people into their home, not even welcome those who are seeking to warp the doctrine of Christ. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't take them into your home house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. To defend truth and love means to be publicly and practically distanced from anyone who warps these issues of the first order. Now that doesn't mean that we stop showing love. You know, the instruction is not go out there and beat them up and leave them on the side of the road. But we have to then also differentiate between those who are teaching this false doctrine and those who have heard it. You know, John is speaking to anyone who comes to you with this doctrine, not anyone who you come across who has been misled. To love Christ is to follow his commandments, and to welcome false teachers is to welcome their falsehood. So, how might we apply this when we come across those who are seeking to share a message which takes away from Jesus as being fully God or fully man? One common group, which I'm sure we would come across on a regular basis, would be the Jehovah's Witness group, uh, people who who deny the true divinity of Jesus. To express the truth and love to a J.W. door knocker might not mean calling them an antichrist, uh, but might mean having an honest chat with them, if you're equipped to point them towards Jesus. It might look like asking someone who's who's taken on board this this teaching, but who is open to honestly, genuinely reanalyzing it, looking at it, thinking about it, hearing the message of Jesus, might be a space to welcome them to, to have a cup of tea, to sit down for a coffee, to talk through what the Bible says about Christ, to talk through the Gospel message. But, on a first order issue like that, I, I would hope that as a church, we would never put a, a JW missionary in the pulpit, or t- attend events, or send our, our children to camps, or, or such things, programs where they would be underneath that teaching. So that's speaking to issues of the first order, salvation issues, key things which make us Christians. What about the others? What, about, what are they about? Second and third order things. Now those aren't what the letter of John is written to, but let me briefly touch on those. Um, because as, as a kid, I went to some holiday camps which were run by the local Baptist church. Now, we have some different views to the Baptist church, so should my parents, instead of of sending me along, have instead taught me to go there and call the pastor a deceiver and an antichrist? Probably wouldn't have gone down too well. That's where those second and third order issues come in. Second order things are issues which are important, but we recognise that you can have a different view on them and still be a Christian. You can still be saved through the gospel of, of salvation by grace alone. These are beliefs which shape the way that we do church, and through which we honour God, we follow him faithfully. These are why we have denominations. We might need to have a separate church structure, but we can still be in personal fellowship with other Christians who would disagree on on second-order things, right? Examples might include our hold on the doctrines of grace and how they should be theologically unpacked, or on church leadership. And then there's third-order issues. These are minor issues which Christians can differ on. You know, getting these right is beneficial for our Christian lives, they're still good, but they're molehills, they're, they're not mountains. Whether because the Bible intentionally leaves them open for interpretation or because they're just not particularly clear in Scripture, um, these things could be You know, which Bible translation to use. What dietary preferences we, we follow as we seek to apply Romans 14. Issues which we could easily differ on among us as a church, as a denomination, and it wouldn't be a cause to, to divide over. So, to go back to my question at the start how would you respond if I started spouting you know, serious false teaching? I hope that you know, it was called out that someone would probably hop up and usher me off the stage. Um, someone would probably laugh at me if, if I said something too ridiculous. I hope that you would respond with truth and love appropriately, you know, calling me to repent perhaps, you know, teaching me the error of my ways. But I hope that I would also bring a firm response, defending the truth in love, in a way which is appropriate to my error. You know, if I got Corinthians and Colossians mixed up or said the KJV is inherently the best translation You'd hopefully look at me a bit weird, have a chat to me afterwards, maybe issue a correction, but probably not spear-tackle me off stage in a way which might be appropriate uh, if I said something really out there. Second John shows us a brief picture of the intertwined nature of truth and love on which the Christian life is grounded. We see the truth and love are results which will be present in a genuine salvation and which we should search after as a church. We're encouraged by our obedience to Christ in truth and love, and we're cautioned to guard those central doctrines of faith carefully, for if we compromise on the gospel, we compromise on truth and on love. May we ever strive to be drawn nearer to Christ, that he will equip and enable us to walk in his truth and love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We ask that as we go from here, you will apply this passage from Second John into our hearts and into our lives, that we will see you more fully, that we'll be grown in our knowledge and understanding of you, and that we will continue to reflect you in the lives of others around us. Lord, may we be a witness for your name, a witness which proclaims your truth and does so reflecting your love. We ask this in your name. Amen.